I have had several opportunities to talk with principals and teachers that dogs have started school and gone back and said to them, so how, how's it going? What's it like? And they've all said, this has been amazing to see how the dogs actually just go through life in the school environment and how the, this, they actually seem to reduce generalized stress, even though nobody else is touching the dog. Just the awareness that the dog is in the space makes a difference for other students in, in how relaxed the environment can feel because they know the dog is there, because they know the dog is relaxed and sleeping. And so it's almost kind of dissipates some of the, the tension that's normal for um, particularly at a high school, at a high school level. Mindful Happy Kids, created and narrated by Dr. Elizabeth Page, consists of interviews with children's authors and poets and illustrators, musicians of all types, and yoga and mindfulness practitioners. Dr. Page also reads from her own children's books on compassion, gratitude, mindfulness, and yoga. Pippi the Puppy and Dr. Page practice meditations or pet-centered meditations, which are recorded as part of the videos. Hello, Kristen. Hi, thanks for having me today. Yeah, thank you so much for agreeing to do this with us. I'm very excited for this. This is our first talk about service dogs. We do a lot of stuff about animals on the Mindful Happy Kids, but we, we've we never had anyone come talk about service dogs and emotional support dogs. So I'm real wow. excited. I love it. So I'm I'm always willing to talk about service dogs and ESAs. So we're in the right spot. Why don't you first tell me about the kids behind you? And that would be a great way to introduce your organization and yourself. Sure. So behind me are a collection of some of the children who have received scholarships from Canines for Disabled Kids, the organization I represent. And the scholarships they received were to help them get their service dogs. And you can see their dogs is a huge variety of breeds and um, different skill sets that the children need the dogs to be able to help them with in order for them to be really functional tools and help the kids get more independence. You'll see a big age range. We've got high schoolers, we've got primary schoolers and everybody in between. And it's an expensive process to train a service dog between 35 and $55,000 to train a service dog. Families are very often asked to raise part of those funds, not all of it, but part of those funds. And our scholarships that we award twice a year are are one way that families can can raise some of that money. So these are a whole bunch. I'll shift a little bit so you can see some more of them. Um, But yeah, you'll see a whole bunch of them. We've done over 300 scholarships since our founding. So it's looking forward to doing more. Wow. I think that's awesome. Thank you. I'm really proud of them, which is why I was going to say I'm proud. That's why I make sure that they're there for everybody to see them. (laughs) How much does it cost to train a service dog? Between $35,000 and $55,000 per dog. And it takes about two years to do. Wow. Do you want to talk a little bit about yourself and how you came upon this? Sure. Um, I 
was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when I was um, in my 20s. I'd had symptoms since I was a teenager. And in my late 20s, I was made aware of a skill set in service dogs that would allow me to walk more independently. Um, It was a trial at that point, but I'd be able to have a dog that would be able to help me do tasks that were difficult for me, like bending over to pick up dropped objects, um, stabilizing me when I walked, um, offering me counterbalance support, fall recovery support. And I was mat- I was matched with a dog in, t- in 2001, and I couldn't shut up, to be very honest. I couldn't, I couldn't shut up. I was so excited to really be back. And, and that's how people described it when they would see me in that first year. They'd say, oh my gosh, you're back. It's so great to see you. It's so great to have you out again. And I had not realized how much I was withdrawing. Um, I had been to Europe. I had been to Great Britain. I had you know, had you know, done all sorts of th- stuff. But as my disability impacted me more, I was making safe choices rather than engaging choices. Um, about a year into getting my service dog, a friend asked me what I wanted to do with this. And I jokingly said that I'd love her job, except it's full time. And she was running a service dog training program at the time. And she asked me if she could put my name forward for this organization that was looking for new leadership. And she told me a bit about this program. We're not a training program. We do education and awareness and scholarship and support for children and their communities all over the United States, up into Canada. Um, And we do a little bit um, in other international, but our focus really is here in North America. It seemed so perfect to me because I got to tell everybody all the things I was already telling them about service dogs and how important they were and what the rules were. And and this way I could really help more people get service dogs. Uh, We do help adults when we can, but our focus, our expertise is really with kids. So um, I like to say if I can do kids, adults are easy in this industry, but it's, it's really true. And so I travel the country every year. I'm all over the place. Um, Love love to go out and be where people need me to be. But I also work um, remotely like this, being able to do podcasts and Zoom meetings and things, anything I can do to help people understand what service dogs are and to help people get them. That's that's what this is all about. So it's it's fabulous. So what brought you to kids? I think it was a bit of an opportunity that was put in front of me. I mean, a friend of mine said, I I think this might be a great venue for you. I also found that kids were really underserved in the industry. They, people didn't want to touch them, or if they did want to touch them, they wanted to be very limited in what they could do. They were, we saw that they were having a longer wait list than grownups were. We saw that even as teenagers, they were really being treated as if they were six or seven years old instead of people who were stepping forward the way that teens do into a more independent life, still needing support, but needing it differently than somebody in primary school might need. We found there was a lot of questions about what was legal, what wasn't legal, what we found there was a lot of conflict with schools because schools wanted 
to control this. They wanted to put it in an IEP. And we said, no, it's not an IEP. It's a 504. Um, and, and these are access tools. And so this was really eye-opening to me. I would have thought children would have been more welcomed by the industry and by the communities, but they weren't. They were, it was more challenging for people to accept them. And I thought that that was a great place for us to, to do the work and to make the connections, um, to help families find what they needed, to help them through the garbage of language and um, the right words and, and, and what schools could ask for versus what they couldn't require versus communities and, and responsibility. And we I really felt that that was an area that I can make a difference in. And so I've been here over 20 years now, and I oh, wow. can't imagine being anyplace else. So, And you have had made a difference. That's a lot of kids that you've helped. It plus is. Plus all the it other is. people that you've educated. I think that's incredible. Thanks. Great. So this is going to be a long answer. I'm sure I'll turn my phone off. This is going to be a long answer, but what are the different types of service dogs for kids? So the different types of service dogs um, are really the same categories of service dogs for kids and for adults. How they might work with a child is can be a little different depending on the age and capability of the child. But those categories really um, are guide work. So dogs that are working with people who are legally blind, visually impaired. They are um, medic alert or medic response dogs. And in this category, you'll see dogs that are using their noses or their ears to alert people to something. So a hearing dog would alert somebody who's hearing impaired to specific trained sounds. A medic alert um, or medic response dog um, that was working with their noses would be working with things like seizures and diabetes to smell and alert their person to changes, um, which might indicate um, a higher load change in diabetes in a diabetic or an, a, the coming of a seizure. We're also seeing this work successfully in cardiac alert for things like POTS, as an example. Um, we'll also see um, dogs working the newest legal type of service dog is a psychiatric service dog. And these are dogs who have trained skills that alter disabilities like post-traumatic stress, as an example, um, just a, of one of the, in that category. We, do, we see dogs specializing in working with children with autism. Uh, we also see um, the most commonly trained um, type of service dog is a mobility service dog. These are dogs that work with people who might need canes, crutches, walkers, wheelchairs, and need help being more mobile in their life, doing daily tasks like picking up the laundry or helping to open doors, turn light switches on and off, anything that gives you more access to your day-to-day -day life. Um, and then the probably the least trained and most difficult to match is a stability dog, meaning the dog that is bearing weight. Um, this is not something we recommend for children until they have finished growing. So um, girls in their teen, later teens, um, when they finish their height growth and, and really boys not until their 20s, 
with some exception based on, on disability restrictions. But those are the general categories that we're going to see for service dogs. I think I got them all there. Um, and then the categories are not specific to the disability. So don't think, even though you will hear people say things like, I have a diabetic alert dog or I have a PTSD dog, they're really telling you more than they need to. It, that's less about a category of dogs as it is about a specific dog for a specific person. So um, I don't, the industry doesn't care what made you legally blind. If you're legally blind, you may be qualified for a guide dog. Um, the industry doesn't care why you use a wheelchair. They just care that what is the skill set you need. So in the service dog industry, it's defined by skill set of the dog, not the disability of the person. That's important too when people go out and say to a restaurant and the restaurant owner asks what the dog is for. They don't have to say what the dog is for. They just have to say the skill set, right? And that's true. The The Americans with Disability Act, the ADA, says that there are two questions that everybody who uses a service dog must be able to answer properly and that anybody can ask you if you're going to take that dog into a place that pets are not normally allowed. So those two questions are, is the dog required because of your disability? So that's a yes or no answer. Um, if you're asking, we'll just pretend you're asking me, you're asking me and the answer is going to be yes. The second question is, what is the trained skill or trained skills that the dog has been taught to do that directly impact your disability? Now, I've expanded that question a little bit um, just for clarification on work. Most people will say to you, what does your dog do? I mean, they'll, they'll simplify it along those lines. My answer is that my dogs are trained for balance, counterbalance, fall recovery, and fetch retrieval. It, it is illegal for anybody to demand to know what my disability is. Um, I'm pretty public about mine, but in a situation where I'm being asked those questions in order to have access to space, I don't forward that. But folks that have chosen to say, I have a diabetic alert dog, I have a PTSD dog, they're putting that information out there, which is okay as long as you know that's what you're doing. You're not required to do that. If you choose to share, there's no, there's nothing that says you can't share more, but there, it's important to know that you don't have to share. So I have a number of folks who, uh, a friend of mine, good friend of mine is diabetic and she will answer and say to people, that she has a medic alert dog because that's what her dog does. And, and she will say that her dog is trained to alert to chemical changes, specific chemical changes in her body. And then, and then that's enough. That's all that the restaurant or business could ask her. And she's answered that appropriately. When we answer, if you answer questions about the results which is very common for folks with psychiatric disability um, or psychiatric service dogs, or for kids with autism. We have to remember there's a lot of bonus things that happen when we have living tools. And we also need to remember to describe the skill set, not the result of the skill set. So a dog that that the result of the skill set is that the child is calmer because it has shortened their um, their overstimulated episode for a child with autism. T answering that the dog calms you 
is not is not a good answer um, and is going to ha- give the restaurant, give the public facility ru- grounds for preventing your access. So we have to know what the skills, the trained skills are, and we have to provide that information when answering those questions. I'm going to jump into the types of dogs that are a little more, I think, complicated to understand. And that's the psychiatric service dog and the autistic service dog. So can you describe Mm -hmm. a little bit about what they do? Sure. What kinds of tasks they would do? These, the skill set for these two categories has a lot of overlap. Um, it's very similar. Um, the different, the primary difference being that when autism became a solid skill set, it actually became a, a solid skill set first before psychiatric service dogs became um, legally protected under the ADA. It was they were working primarily under parents with younger children. Psychiatrics, the category, works with children and adults. So we're seeing. One, we're seeing that these are disabilities that are less visible or invisible in general to the to the general public. And that can make a big difference in how people understand what a service dog is and what it's doing. Both of these categories are categories that the public might misunderstand as emotional support animals, which is a very different grouping of animal. It's not a service animal. Um, but it's also an area that people can be taken advantage of. Um, I have seen situations where when the client did not fully understand what they should have received for a service dog, for psychiatric or for autism, they were actually given an emotional support animal and told by somebody, well-meaning or not, that that animal qualified as a service animal. So this these categories, as you said, it can be very confusing, can be very misleading. Psychiatric service animals, and whether they're working with post-traumatic stress or whether they're dogs that are specializing in individuals with autism, have to be taught to do something that changes the independence level you have with a disability that does not, and this part is true of all service dogs, that does not provide emotional support or comfort or companionship as the primary. So for example, a dog that rests its head on your lap so that you can pet it so that you can calm down is emotional support. That behavior is emotional support, whether it does it voluntarily or whether you tell it to do it, okay? A dog that has been trained to press its butt, body weight, these are dogs that are generally 50 pounds or bigger, to press its body weight across your lap or your belly, mimicking a weighted blanket, shortening PTSD episodes, autism overstimulations, and even even shortening things like spasticity um, from seizures or from CPMS, things like that. That's a trained skill. Now, how do we know the difference in that example from a trained skill versus a comfort? Because if you if you have a dog and you love your dog, having your dog in your lap and so that you can hug it and squeeze it and love it is a comfort behavior. 
what we do is we talk with people and say, what non-living tool are we trying to emulate here? Okay, so that's how we know the difference between emotional and non-emotional. If you can use a weighted blanket to shorten your spasticity, to shorten your overstimulated meltdown from autism, to shorten your um, your PTSD or your uh, episodes, those are things that then we can replicate into a dog, give you the right weight bearing from the dog. And this is he- this is deep pressure. This is not a light touch. This is not an average touch. This is going to feel heavy on you. Okay. You'll also get the bonus of it being a living tool, which will give you some, it's like getting frosting on a cupcake or getting whipped cream and sprinkles on an ice cream sundae or something. Um, you can get the bonuses, but we need to make sure that the bonuses are not the only thing or not the purpose of the skill that they've been taught. So um, we also see them doing things like interrupting. Um, tells are something you do that you don't know you do before you go into an episode. Other people around you will say things like, absolutely, their hands start shaking. They're, you know, they start plucking their eyebrows. They start pulling their hair. It's something you very consistently do that you are unaware of before going into an episode. With children, the dogs are not taught to watch for this. With children, the dogs are taught to listen for a parent to tell them when to interrupt, mostly because there's a lot of change that's happening. So the parents can be more discriminating about what, when to use it and to be able to use it on different things. With an adult, we're seeing that the dogs can be taught to watch for one, maybe two things we're not, we're asking them to really focus and watch for one thing and then alert you or interrupt you when you do that so that you get an early alert and are able to take control of the situation, whether that is through medication, meditation, um, or what other things that you might do, very much like a diabetic alert dog. So a diabetic alert dog smells something. They indicate, they bump, generally they're bumping the person with their nose. There's one, one way to do that. Pushing on the person with their nose. And what they're doing is saying that smell is changing. That chem, That smell, I'm smelling that smell, I'm supposed to tell you. The individual would then check their Dexcom or do a blood test and either take medication or eat some, you know, maybe they're going to go have some fruit or something to be able to help stabilize that. A person with a psychiatric tell, for example, one woman I worked with, her she plucked her eyebrows. When I met her, she had no eyebrows at all, but she didn't know she did it. She would pull her eyebrows out. She'd be bleeding. She'd have no idea what was going on. She would then accelerate through an episode and actually end up like under the table at a restaurant because she just could not function. A dog, a psychiatric service dog was trained so that every time she touches her eyebrows, he bumps her. Okay. And, and she has learned that when he bumps her, it means that her levels, her, her stress level is elevating. She needs to stop and, and take stock of what's going on. Sometimes she's able to continue in the environment. Sometimes she makes the choice to leave and come back. Um, But the last time I saw her, she has eyebrows now. 
So she's oh, cool. the dog by acting as an early alert. I know it's so fabulous. I was so excited when I saw her and she had eyebrows again. I was like, this is so wonderful. Um, but she said she uses the dog for a number of different things, always with the skills first. And then she can use the bonuses. Sometimes once she's gotten her gotten the alert, she goes out, she does some meditation. She has the dog sit with her. She'll pet the dog's head, um, be able to really relax in that space, recenter herself, and then get up and re-enter the environment that she was stressed out in. So she's pausing. You know, there's a pause in her life while she reorganizes from an episode, but she doesn't stop her. It doesn't prevent her from going forward. It's just a pause. And the dog has allowed her to do that where before she wasn't going out, she wasn't engaging. And when she tried to engage, she was often finding herself in really bad situations. So those are some examples of how those dogs, they're not the only ones. Um, there's other ways that that these dogs work with both categories, but it's really important to make sure you're getting a true skill set from these dogs and not getting um a not just getting a well-behaved dog that gives you emotional support i thought it was pretty cool that they can bring the medication to the owner also yes they can um often we'll see dogs being trained to fetch medications um in the home or in in like a hotel room or something maybe you've gotten to a point where you know you need your medication but you just can't access it because of the way your body um, is reacting to your episode. Um, we're seeing dogs be trained to press emergency buttons, but um, I'm going to age myself here, but the commercials used to be, I've fallen and I can't get up and you would push the button and it would connect you to an emergency. Um, the dogs can be trained to press those. So if something happened and you couldn't get up and, and get help, they can press on instruction. It's, you know, they're not, they're not making a judgment call. They're waiting for an instruction, which could be verbal vision. It could be a hand signal. It could be done through a computer that talks that the, that you give instructions on a number of different things. Um, we're seeing them be able to press buttons um, that you can do pre-recordings into so that your message can get across to somebody who's who maybe you can't reach maybe your voice shuts down when you're in an episode maybe it's hard for you to to verbally communicate in that space the dog can help do that they can fetch your phone um bring it to you so that again you don't feel like you have to have everything taped to you as you walk around the around you know, especially your house or your um, hotel room but the dog can bring those things to you um in that space really helping you to get help when you need it. Oh, it's amazing. Okay, can you talk, you spoke a little bit about the difference between an emotional support dog or an emotional support animal and a service dog. Can you talk a little bit more about the emotional support animal? Absolutely. So emotional support animals are really important for a lot of people. They are, and and I'm going to paraphrase some of this. I'm going to use some of my own terms to try to help people understand this. So if you look this up legally, it will be um, a longer definition with a lot fancier words. So forgive me um, for this, but emotional support animals are defined and um, they are governed by the Fair Housing Act under HUD. 
These are animals that have been prescribed by a doctor who is treating the individual with the psychiatric disability and basically prescribe a pet as part of the mental health treatment that that individual needs. These are animals that could be all sorts of things. I've seen fish, I've seen rabbits, I've seen um, birds, dogs and cats are very popular, bunnies. Some It has to be something that can safely live in the environment that you live in. So that's general. generally what we're seeing is uh, where these titles are needed are in apartments um, or in townhouses, rental situations. If you own your own home, you do not need to have a title put on your dog for an ESA because ESAs are the only reason they need a title is for housing because they do not have public access um, for any anything else. They, they can't go to the restaurant. They can't go to the beach. They can't go on the airplane, anything like that. Um, they are their role is to provide something for you to be emotionally connected with and to be responsible for and care for in your home. So you you get up, you you um, and everybody uses this a little differently, um, depending it's going to be customized to you. But you have somebody to talk to that is not judgmental and it is never going to tell your secrets. Um, you have someone you have to care for. You have to get up and feed your animal and brush your animal and take care of your animal and hopefully take better care of yourself because this animal relies on you. We strongly recommend uh, people, we see this a lot with teens. Um, it works with adults as well, but we see this a lot with teenagers who are really struggling, especially with anxiety, that a service dog, a psychiatric service dog might be too much. It might actually cause some some triggering. Um, it actually might increase certain levels of anxiety depending on the individual. That would be something we would talk about in more detail. But we're finding and we're seeing a lot of kids benefit from the use of an ESA with what we call dog activities. You'll see, you'll see a lot of this. You might look up animal interventions um, because ESAs are not species specific, but we specialize in dogs. So we talk about dogs a lot. Using a dog to help you learn things like more self-confidence and to build your uh, to to build your stress reduction tool set. How are you going to work through things? How are you going to get out in the environment? What are you going to do to deflect um, unnecessary questions or to refocus conversations around something that you feel more confident about? We strongly recommend using dogs for that and taking and Getting a dog, a young dog, um, a, I recommend a dog, you know, under two to three years old, but although that's just a recommendation, we recommend dogs in the sporting category because they tend to be the breeds that really like to do these types of activities and want to bond with you um, in a very natural way um, and in a way that is really positive for for people around you. Um, we're not, we're not looking for dogs that are protective, um, protective dogs are not going to help you in these situations. They service dogs can never be protective. 
ESAs, if they are protective breeds, will actually inhibit your ability to, to use them in this way. So get your dog and start, depending on the age of your dog, start going to puppy classes, go to puppy kindergarten, go then go to basic obedience, then go to advanced obedience. We highly recommend earning what's called a CGC or a canine good citizenship test. That's all about manners, which is fabulous because it tells your landlord that your dog knows how to behave when the when somebody delivers a package or when somebody comes to, you know, fix the sink or whatever, that the dog's not jumping all over them or barking at them or trying to keep them away from you. We, we These animals all need good manners. Um, but then go beyond that. What do you like to do? What does your dog like to do? There are so many activities out there that you and your dog can do together just for fun, or you can get into it at a competition level. Um, you can do rally, which is a fun way to do advanced obedience skills. You can do dock diving. When you throw toys and your dogs race off these docks and they jump out into the water to retrieve this tool and you're checking to see who jumped the furthest. You you can do agility. You can do dot dog dancing and you can there's there's trick dog classes and there's scent dog classes and there's all sorts of really fun things barn hunts and just amazing fun things that you can do with a partner that help you to be out help you be physically active it will help you to sleep better because the animal's with you so um, we see an increased an increased sleep um, quality being reported back to us we can, you can um, really see that you're talking to other people who are dog crazy people. They don't want to talk. They want to talk about <laughs> your dogs. They want to, you know, they're, they're like, they don't want to talk about what you were nervous about or what, you know, that they, they don't want to get into that space that you don't want people into. But in order to be successful, you have to build confidence. You have to build um, that partnership with your dog and, your dog's like, hey, go to school and come home. And when you come home, we're going to practice this. And then this weekend, we're going to go out. And we're going to conquer the world like this. It has changed so much for so many people that don't then don't need to go the extensive route and more expensive route of, of a service dog. Um, these the, the role of an ESA or, or a personal pet for this populate for the for folks really for everybody who's just dog people but especially for teens and adults who are dealing with anxieties and dealing with stress and other psychiatric situations that maybe a service dog is too much for maybe a service dog is overkill for maybe getting something into your life sooner um, in a way that provides that emotional support that confidence building that that companionship without all the extra, um, without all the additional pieces of service and trained skills and, and such is a much better option. Um, so they're very exciting. I love to see people working with ESAs, um, whether it's because they have a formal title on them because they need it or whether it's a dog filling that role, but living in a home that you own. So for an ESA, you don't really need to pay for extra training except for the puppy school and the obedience school and the good canine right. citizenship. So, exactly. So an ESA is going, the cost of an ESA is going to have a lot to do with you. 
whether you get that dog from a shelter, whether you get that dog from a breeder, um, whether you get that dog from an oops litter from a next door neighbor, um, that's that's all going to affect that. Um, you are looking, how much training do you want to do? Which classes do you want to be part of? Who do you choose to work with? I know folks, I know places in our area, I'm in Massachusetts, a six-week course is about $250, depending on which courses you want to work with. Um, they have drop-in courses that are $30 or $40 for a drop-in session, depending, you know, at once you're affiliated with with certain facilities. How much of that do you want to do? That's up to you. You know, we re- definitely recommend that you do some of it. Um, it's good manners. It's good responsibility to do that. But then beyond that, you could, you could not spend any more money on that. You could um, spend a, you could spend a couple hundred dollars a year. You could join a club and, and decide that you want to do some competitive things like rally or Frisbee or things. And then you'd have entrance fees to pay for those different competitions, but you control that where with a service dog, you don't control that. There's a, there, it just costs a lot more to produce a service dog um, than it does to produce a really great companion, you know, and you have, again, you have control over that. You have breed selection over that. You are going to name your own puppy. Um, All of those are things that are not happening for 99% of the people using service dogs. You've mentioned it a couple times, but what's rally? Rally is a fun way to, um, as a fun way to practice and show off how obedient your dog is. So um, all of these things I've mentioned, you can find on the AKC at akc.org and look for their sports that they do, that they recommend. So it's the American Kennel Club. Um, but basically what happens in rally, there's different levels, beginner, intermediate, and advanced. And you're, you're chasing points. You're not necessarily trying to beat your neighbor. You're chasing points. So everybody who gets the same number of points will get the same ranking. Okay. Um, and there's a, a like a maze, for lack of a better word, there's a maze of activities. And those things change every time the game is played. You walk your dog up to the sign. You read the sign. You do what the sign says. And then you go on to the next sign. And that sign could be to have your dog sit or to have your dog down or to put your dog in a stay and walk in a circle around your dog. Make your dog back up. Tell your dog to speak. At a beginner level, you do this, you can use treats and you can, and you have your dog on leash. As you get more advanced, you use less leash work and less treats. And by the time you're at the highest level, your your dog is doing this completely unleashed and and with no treats um, to get through the exam. So you can do it as often as you want. They're all over the place. Mixed breeds, you do not have a, have a purebred dog to do any of these dog activities. Mixed breed dogs do them very well. Um, but it's a way to to have more fun and, and trust you and your dog to, to show off your obedience levels and your skills. Great. Okay. What age groups for each of these types of service dogs? So um, we're talking kids mostly. We are talking. Yep. Um, The way we, the way we see ages break down in the service dog world is based on responsibility. So for example, stability dogs, um, 
guide dogs and um, hearing dogs are dogs that really need to work one-on-one with their partner. They do not do well because of their skill set. They do not do well with what we call having a facilitator or a third-party handler. So these are dogs that we would not recommend um, and that many training programs won't even consider until you're six, rough, approximately 16 or older to work with those categories of dogs. Um, as I said earlier, stability also has to do with your growth. You need, you should be finished growing before you are considered for a stability dog. Yeah, the other categories, the medic alert, medic response, mobility, really depend on this on what does a child need and how much is the parent willing to be responsible. So we have supported dogs um, with children as young as two for seizure alert and diabetic alert. The dog is alerting the parent, not the child, about the changes or about the coming seizure. Okay. Um, it's what's called a third party or a facilitated partnership. This means that the there's a trained adult, usually mom or dad, sometimes both, who is with the partnership. If the three of them, the dog, the child, and the, and the trained facilitator are not together, then the dog does not go out in public. So you can't take the dog to the grocery store while the child's at school. The dog can't go to school with the child unless the facilitator is there. All right. So these dogs are not working 24-7 like a dog working with an adult. Okay. They're, they're working. They have, they have longer periods of the day where they're not working, where they're kenneled in their home, um, where they're resting, waiting for that child to come back into the partnership. They, um, they had, you need more homework, more, more structured homework with these dogs to keep their skill set up, but they can be very successful. Um, when we see this happen though, we, we want to make sure that it is a skill set that's going to work that way. Um, age five is, I would say about 90%, 90, 95% of the training programs and responsible trainers that we work with do not like to place a dog with a child under the age of five. If the child's going to be able to interact with the dog, we need the dog to be able to see the child um, as a viable piece of the partnership. And that happens at about the age of five for a child, for most children. Um, we also see things like um, we we want to make sure that we have as much information about the child as possible. The trainers, the more they have, the and the more stable the child is, the easier it is to train and match a service dog. A lot of disabilities for children under the age of five, they're just too fluctuating. So we don't, again, don't see many of them under the age of five. A mobility service dog, we recommend um, about the age of 10 or over. Um, first, they'll be in what we call a supervised facilitation, which is a lot like being um, on a learner's pit permit for your for getting a driver's license, where you ha- still have to have that facilitator. They're there to take responsibility, but you're doing more, you're more interactive than, than a younger child would able to be able to be. Um, you're also at the age where the skill set that the dog has is something you're naturally going for. You know, when you're having those, when the child is saying, I can do it, I want to do it, mom, get out of the bathroom, mom, you know, I, I can make my own bed. I, those are the things, those are the times that we're saying, okay, now it's time to look at a mobility service dog. 
by the age of 14, most children are able to be fully independent. They should retest. They may need to take a refresher course at that point, but they will need to do that without mom or dad or any other facilitators being um, part of that, that retraining and part of that testing process. Um, but generally about 14 is when we see most kids being able to, to step into that full responsibility. We do see some kids um, younger, closer to the age of 12, but it depends on, um, really depends case by case, but not, not, not much under the age of 12 for independent partnerships. Um, but there's really no bottom age, um, especially for things medically like um, diabetes, uh, seizures, things like that, that the dog's going to use their nose and alert a parent to. Um, so again, type of disability, type of skill set, age and capabilities of the child all go into that, that mix. How about for an emotional support animal? You can do an emotional support animal anytime because that's really going to function, especially with a younger child as um, a family pet would. And you're going to encourage that child to grow up with that dog or the uh, you know other animal, depending on what you have. And dogs are great because you can really encourage them to be involved with a young child where cats you know, it really takes a special cat to want to like hang out with a four-year-old. Um, <laughs> but you encourage you, right? you, but you can encourage a child to pet the animal, to start to take responsibility and helping to feed the animal, helping to do that prep work, being comfortable with the animal, relying on the animal as that secret keeper, um, as that tactile um, comfort support behavior. Um, you can you can absolutely start that at any at any age with a child. Great. Can you talk a little bit about the training of a service dog, what that entails and what it's like for the child? Sure. So when we first we'll talk about the dogs themselves and then we'll talk a, a bit about how the, the people are introduced into that. The majority of training programs are, tra are training dogs on one, I'll say like one section they're training dogs and on the other section they have a client list. As the dogs finish their training, they're then matching the, the dogs to the, the right clients. This is in part because the failure rate in the service dog world is very high. It's a minimum of 50-50, okay? So your minimum, the best chance any individual dog can have is a 50-50 shot. Um, and the failure rates go up as we step away from the top breeds in the industry and as we step away from um, dogs starting training by eight weeks of age. So ideally, a puppy would be training, starting training by the time it's eight weeks old, just when it's leaving its mom, it's, you know, like going to start kindergarten, um, dog kindergarten, I say. They are going to start the first year is very similar for all types of service dogs. Um, they're going to be learning basic obedience. They're going to be learning manners. They're going to be learning um, all about new things, that new things are exciting and nothing to be afraid of. They're um, really being saturated in social experiences. They're experiencing, con you know, they're experiencing outdoor concerts. They're experiencing parades. They're going, they're experiencing fireworks. They're experiencing grocery stores and 
kindergarten classes and soccer games, everything you can possibly expose them to so that they learn to generalize so that when they get to something they haven't experienced before, they'll go, oh, it was like that. This is a breeze. I can handle this and move forward. There's no way to train a dog to everything. The the purpose is really to expose them as much as possible and teach them generalization. So they're positively generalizing environments. The second year is where we see skill sets really being fine-tuned and developed. Some skill sets have been introduced earlier, just depends on the dogs and their interest and, and the program that they're in. But skill sets will include things like fetch. Um, they will include things hold, carry, touch, nudge, bump. They will include deep pressure. They will include guide work, hearing work whatever that dog is being, it, that they hope that dog will do. Some programs are like like universities and that they have more than one major for the dog. Other programs are exclusive to a certain skill set. So depending on the dog, I've seen dogs start for one skill set and need to be shifted over. Some training programs do work together and will swap dogs back and forth. They might have a dog that started guide dog school and is really, really too nosy. And they might call their part, they might call a partner that does diabetic alert dogs and have that those people come over to test that dog to see if it would be a good um, a good scent dog for diabetes or seizures or whatever. So they would um, they try to swap them around whenever they can. It's always about finding the right job for the right dog. The dog doesn't want to do it. We don't want them to be forced into doing this. It's all positive reinforcement training. So that means that if you do it right, you get a reward. If you do it wrong, we really kind of wait you out. We really, there's very little, um, there might be some verbal correction to get a dog to refocus on something or to try something again, but there's, you know, no pinch collars, no, e this is not an industry for pinch collars or e-collars or, um, or, you know, really harsh, you know, no choke chains and harsh re and harsh corrections. Like, really old school type of training. Um, I know that those tools are used by a lot of people for a lot of reasons. I'm not condemning any of those tools in and of themselves. What I am saying though, is that for a service dog to be worked in public, these are dogs that are gonna be working in all public environments with all sorts of crazy stuff going on, that these dogs have to be that good. Their obedience, their behavior, their manners, have to be that good so that they do. If, if you need a pinch collar to work your dog in public, it is not ready to be a service dog. Okay. If you're, if, if a puppy in training cannot pass and earn its canine good citizenship test, it is not ready to be considered for a service dog. These are markers. They're not the be all end all, but they're markers in the journey to become a service dog. Um, that being said, you know, you use different tools at different point in the training, but by the time we get to the end, they should be, um, you should be able to walk these dogs in public with very little pressure, with very little concern. We do see a lot of head collars being used, um, which is great. They're non, they're um, easy to use. They're like a, a martingale, but they allow for somebody to be able to feel very easily where the head is going, especially on the larger breeds with um with very little pressure from the dog or the person to be able to communicate 
um, and be able to work along those ways, very natural way for dogs to communicate with um, slight pressure put on the nose if if needed. Um, again, very slight pressure to be able to work with those animals. Service dogs, when they go to school, they get two grades. They get a 100 and they get a zero. They get zeros. They don't get to keep going in school. If they get 100s, they get to keep going. So this is definitely, um, you know, if they're getting a lot of 90s, they're not going to be service dogs. They're going to be great dogs someplace else. They may go be visiting therapy dogs. They may become dogs that work in courthouses or other therapeutic environments um, where they can have time more time off, where they are less you know, maybe they have the same environment all the time. There's a lot of reasons to shift a dog to a different role. Um, we also see dogs shifting to police departments because of things like incredibly high drive. Um, one one dog I know, he, <laughs> I, I was involved in his failure. I was part of his final testing. I opened the back of my car and spilled 100 tennis balls out of my car. This dog that was supposed to be walking nicely with his client um, he was with the, with the trainer as part of the test, but he lost his mind. He couldn't get enough tennis balls. He had four of them in his mouth. He was trying to scoop the rest of the tennis balls up into a pile. He just couldn't control himself. He just wanted those balls. Well, so he failed service dog school, but he was he was adopted by a local police department, and they use a tennis ball as a reward for finding drugs. That dog was amazing. That dog found the drugs all the time, super fast. And he was like, give me the ball. I found the drug, give me the ball. And so it was an awesome drug dog, but he was a terrible service dog. So you you know, you know, wanna make sure they get to the right place based on what, what they need. Um, but service dog training, dog, they should be pretty grown up. Dog, most dog breeds are grown up at about the age of 24 months, about two years old. Um, you get an 18 month old dog, you're getting a teenager, be prepared for that because teenagers are on and off and on and off, right? Um, it's, it's about making sure that the dog is ready to step into a working life when it goes to its client. So dogs, this, they're, you're not getting a one-year-old service dog. You're get if you have a one-year-old, it's a dog in training. It also takes a long time to train these dogs. You do not pull a dog out of a shelter and train it as a service dog in three months. You you can't. You can use shelter dogs, but it will take more than three months to train and proof that animal to make sure that they are appropriate in public. Um, it's not going to take necessarily another 24 months to train, a, to, to take a dog out of a shelter because you're they've got a lot of life experience, hopefully, that has has prepped them through some of those things, but you're still looking with a puppy. You're looking at approximately two years of training. Most of these dogs um, are going to finish their training at about 24, 24 months or so to two and a half years old is when they should be finishing training. Um, you know, depending on, on what they're, what they're doing um, and depending on where they came from will impact their, their exact um, times. Now, when the dog is finished, um, and this is true, whether you have been doing what we call owner assist training, which means that you have been involved with the training, you actually own the dog, you've been involved with the training from the beginning. Um, when the dog has finished its training, you need between 80 and 100 hours 
of training on how to use the dog. So the work that you did with the dog when you were teaching the dog is different than making sure that you know how to use the dog, that you are using the commands properly, that you're working with the dog, the dog is signaling you properly, the dog is responding to you properly. You should between receive between 80 and 100 hours worth of training on how to use the dog, um, helping you to be prepared for your successor dog, because dogs, the one fault they have is that they don't live forever. Um, we also make sure that we need to um, we need to have that responsibility. Um, and then you and your dog should take what is commonly called a public access test, which is a slight misnomer. It's like a f- elevated, fancy um, canine good citizenship test. And instead of just evaluating the dog, it's an evaluation of you and your dog. How do you work through public spaces? Are you doing all the responsible steps when you drive up to a mall or you drive, you're going to go into the movies. Did you exit the vehicle safely with your dog? Did you give your dog a chance to go to the bathroom? And did you pick up appropriately if your dog did need to go to the bathroom? Did you make sure that your dog isn't picking up popcorn that's left all over the floor in the movie theater that you are, are you making sure that the dog is on the floor in the restaurant underneath the table, that it is not um, trying to wipe food from from other people or that you're not asking the restaurant to provide a water dish and you're not feeding the dog from the table, um, that you're, but that you're doing your skills properly and you're doing them properly in a non-controlled environment and that you and your dog are working together. Um, This can take a couple hours or longer to do a public access test to make sure that you can do this long term. Um, I know a lot of kids can do this for an hour, um, especially in a really controlled environment. That's not what this is about. This is testing to see are you going to be responsible for your dog in all public places 24-7? And if you're not, then you need a facilitator who would be part of that test as well. Interesting. What are the top breeds? The top breeds are the golden retrievers and the Labrador retrievers by, I mean, like 85, 90% of the dogs in the industry are either pure, pure goldens, pure labs, or golden lab crosses, which I like to call glabs. I know a lot of people in the industry (laughs) do too, but I think it's a fun name for them. Um, we, so those are, those are your top breeds by like a huge number. Those are your top breeds. Um, then we do see, um, standard poodles and poodle crosses coming in underneath that. These are harder breeds to get through the smarter, that's the wrong word. The, the more problem solving your dog is, the less likely they are going to pass service dog school. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. The more they want to do brain work, the harder it is for them to be willing to do service work. They need the right job. They need the right person. Um, They do pass. Some of them do pass. But to give you an idea, in the industry, I often hear that it's a two-year wait list for the for a service dog, except if you're looking. For something that's got a poodle cross, you should plan on, or a, po- or a pure poodle, you're looking probably at a three-year wait. Um, oh, so it does extend that. Um, but they're necessary. We need them. They work well. 
They are a hair breed dog, which people like to call a hypoallergenic dog. No such thing as a hypoallergenic dog, but um, hair breed dogs do not have fur dander, which is what we commonly refer to when we when we say that somebody has a dog allergy. It's a fur dander allergy that we're usually referring to. And hair dander is different. Um, people don't have the same reaction to that in general. Um, and then underneath that, you'll see some, you'll see shepherds, you'll see collies, you'll see mixed breed dogs. Um, you'll see some exceptions. Um, every so often you'll see a dog that'd be really hard for me to, to say that it was a dog that, that passed, like I'd say, oh my gosh, I can't believe that dog passed. Um, because it's an extremely normal, it's a breed known for protection or it's a breed known for some other things that, um, that make bad service dog behaviors, you know, that make bad service dog candidates. That being said, I get it, you know, that, that it's about the right dog for the right person, but we have to be very careful that these dog that whatever dog ends up in service, that they love their job they want to do their job. They do it in a non-aggressive, non-protective way um, all the time. And that and that they're able to, to help people access the world, not prevent the world from accessing us. Awesome. So what is the training like for the child? So when a person goes into training, um, when if it's a child, they usually start the training with a parent or guardian because it's always more positive to say, oh, surprise, you don't need a facilitator than to start as if they could do it independently and then have to bring a parent in. In addition to that, um, a parent may need to be a backup. Everybody's going to need a backup on their dog at some point because we can't ever force a re we can't force a school or a hospital or a doctor's office or a restaurant to take responsibility for our dogs. So if you're going in for an MRI or you're going in for any kind of test where you cannot physically hold on to your dog and keep it, make sure that, that it, you're responsible and that it's doing what it's supposed to do, then you need a, you need somebody to back you up periodically. Okay. And so parents, and children usually start the full week together, even if those, even if they're teens, they learn, um, they learn how to handle a dog leash. They learn about vocalizing to dogs. So having a confident voice, but a voice that is positive, um, that, it, that the dog will respond to positively versus a corrected voice, a dog that, that might sound like the dog is in trouble. Um, they learn about proper feeding and grooming and such. So a lot of basics on how to take care of your tool. Then they start working with the dog. They meet, they meet their dogs. Um, in the beginning, a lot of programs will do a few days where you work with the dog during the day, but you don't take the dog back to your room at night. Some places you live on campus and other places you need to live in a hotel. Um, there are a few places that will do this in your home. We don't recommend that because it's important to really be focused and have as little distraction as possible when you're training with your service dog. And training in your home can be very, very distracting. People interrupt you. Your normal things are there. It, it can be very distracting. So staying in a hotel or st even better working in a place that provides housing for you 
is the best way for you to be focused during this period. They will, once you get to the point where the trainers feel confident that you know the instructions, that you know how to work through, um, you're doing really well working together in a controlled environment at, on campus, they will then take you, you'll start doing road trips, you'll go out to local stores, you'll go out to restaurant, you might go to a restaurant for lunch with your trainer and really practice um, in a real life situation, I'm sorry, my dogs are going to bark here in a moment. Um, my neighbor's kids are getting off the school bus. I apologize. <laughs> um, but the, um, the, that person is going to, let's just give me a, a second here. Hold on. Hey, duck. Hi. <laughs> sorry he loves them he loves them and he just wants them to come over and play and when they get the school bus lets them off in front of our house he's like they're here they're here and i'm like they're not coming here so he's he's calling to them they, they'll talk to him they're actually yelling at him from outside which is not helping so um but they're happy he's happy how can i how can i go wrong hey duck come here duck he's considering um, so when, with the, to continue back on the, on the training, um, the child, if they're going to be working with a facilitator, the facilitator and the child will be working together in public, there will be things that the child might have to learn how to do and might not, depending on what level that child is. Um, so a child say who's diabetic, who's five or six years old, doesn't learn as much as a child who's 14, who's diabetic. Um, the, the five or six-year-old is going to learn that that dog's going to go back and forth to mom. They're going to learn more about bonding. Um, they're going to learn some basics in obedience, but mom and dad are going to be learning the majority of what an alert looks like, how to reward it, how to respond to it, things like that. Where a 14-year-old is going to learn what is, this is how my dog alerts me by either pushing on me with their nose, licking on, licking at me, maybe looking at my wrist or my, or my knee. Um, one group I know, actually the dog wears, it looks like a funny necktie and they wear it. And when, but it's not connected to anything. And when the, when it's an alert, the dog reaches over and picks it up and shows you this object so that, you know, it's an alert The child would then learn how to use that. And again, once they get to the end of that 80 to hundred hour period, the trainers will arrange a test um, and you go out. once you pass the test, you're good to go. Most responsible training programs do have you reevaluated um, periodically through the lifetime of your working partnership. Most of these dogs will work until they're about the age of 10. Um, some will work even longer, 11, 12, till they're 11, 12 years old. So eight to 10 years of work is what we're expecting from these dogs. Um, we are expecting them to be correct 80 or more cent of the, cent, uh, cents of the time. So when we have these dogs, they need to follow our instruction. They need to be doing 80, 90 percent correct without needing to have something um, told them again, um, you know, without repeating a command or not missing alerts for things like seizures and diabetes and such. So um it's very intense. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of responsibility. The more, the if you can do it without um, everyday distractions, it really helps to be able to do that. 
Um, and if you're a child, say at 10, you started as a facilitated partnership. And at 14, you, you want to work with your dog as an independent partnership. You will go through some of that training again. Um, you will be retested, but you will do that without mom or dad being part of your partnership. This is amazing. <laughs> oh, can you talk a little bit about the dogs in the schools? Sure. And what it's like for the teachers and the other students. Thank you. Um, when a dog works in school with an independent child, so this is usually high school age that we'll see this. It's important that the school and the teachers and the other students recognize that this is a tool. This is not a toy. Let me say that again. These are not therapy animals. These are not animals that people should be touching. They shouldn't be talking to them. They shouldn't be uh, deliberately interacting with them when when they're working. And that's true everywhere. But in the schools, that can be a really hard thing to do. We we should be documenting these animals. There's, the student does not need an, in, an IEP, an individual learning plan, in order to have a service animal. Service animals are access tools like wheelchairs, canes, crutches. Um, and those things are documented under what's called the 504. So they're documented as part of the child's ability to access the world. Those are tools that the child needs to access the world, but they're not something that the school controls. It's not about education. It's not, it's, it's not about how the child learns. It's not about therapy. It's about access. Like, how do I get from A to B? How do I get through the hallway? How do I um, hear the fire alarms. Um, the, how do I manage my disability? Not um, that I would manage it anywhere, um, but schools need more paperwork on that. Our program offers free educational programs that we do with the staff of any school that wants this and with the student body. We do a lot of student body um, presentations, even when there's never going to be a dog in the school, because that general learning process is really great because they can apply that to an in-school and an out-of-school environment. But we also uh, definitely when there's going to be a dog attending school with us, with a student, it's important to get the staff trained on having the dogs in the class. The dog should sleep next to the staff. They should lay down right next to the student where their desk are. Um, if it's something like gym class or chemistry class where the dog should be further away, maybe there's a dangerous chemical, maybe you're playing volleyball, um, then the child needs to secure the dog in the room either by um, like tying them to something that keeps them in a safe spot um, or some, some students use pop-up crates, things like that, that they bring set up in the environment, put the dog in it and tell the dog to stay until that activity is over. Um, it's important to note that these dogs are, they're gonna be in the cafeteria, they're gonna be in the nurse's office, they're gonna be wherever that student needs to be. They, um, there's a lot of concerns about allergies with other students. The really great thing is that dogs are touch-based allergens um, for the majority of people with allergies. Um, if you are, if you, have a 
a sensitivity level that you could you could react to the the fur that's on somebody's clothing. The allergens that I talked with said that those people should carry EpiPens because everybody who has a dog at home is carrying dog dander with them. So if accidental contact is going to trigger your response versus full-on petting, for most people, it's a full-on petting that that would trigger that. Um, we want to make sure that we respect each other's space, but the dogs cannot be denied access to any space, whether it's school or other spaces, as long as they're working and, and being and their person's being responsible. But sometimes in school, that means shifting students so that stu- kids aren't sitting next to each other because of a potential allergy risk or that um, maybe we even shift them completely. If we know in advance, we don't put them in the same session. You know, they both have to take biology, but there's two biology classes. So the student with a severe allergy goes in one and the other student goes in the other one. So that they're reduce the chances of accidental, accidental touching. But I have had several opportunities to talk with principals and teachers that dogs have started school and gone back and said to them, so how, how's it going? What's it like? And they've all said, this has been amazing to see how the dogs actually just go through life in the school environment and how the, this, they actually seem to reduce generalized stress, even though nobody else is touching the dog. Just the awareness that the dog is in the space makes a difference for other students in, in how relaxed the environment can feel because they know the dog is there, because they know the dog is relaxed and sleeping. And so it's almost kind of dissipates some of the, the tension that's normal for um, particularly at a high school, at a high school level. But it's it's an amazing thing. Um, we do not generally see dogs entering service dogs entering the school for people who are not in fully independent because we cannot force the school to take responsibility for the dog. The law is very clear about that with all facilities. The dogs have access, but the facilities are not responsible. Just like the school is not responsible for your eyeglasses, they're not responsible for your wheelchair, they're not responsible for your service dog. So facilitated teams very rarely go to school. Um, If they do, it's a rare exception where the school chooses to take responsibility and liability, which is very expensive on those dogs, um, or the family has provided a handler, uh, a family member attends school or somebody that they pay who was trained as a facilitator attends school, handling the dog, taking that responsibility. And we have seen a few of those cases as well, but just much, much fewer than once they're an independent partnership. Got it. Well, this has been so informative and interesting and these dogs and animals are amazing. This is just incredible. They are Is there phenomenal. anything we miss? Oh, where can people reach you? <laughs> Thank you. Um, people can reach us at Canines for, Ki- Canines for Disabled Kids. Our website is caninesforkids.org. We do spell that out, C-A-N-I-N-E-S-F-O-R-K-I-D-S.org. That's right. Let me try that again. 
So you can reach us at our website is www.caninesforkids.org. So caninesforkids.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. So you can reach us through any of those platforms. Again, Canines for Disabled Kids. You can also call us at 978-422-5299, extension 1001, which is my extension, or you can speak with any of my team members. There's five of us. We'll be all happy to help you in any way possible, whether it's general questions. Um, We're a nonprofit, so we love donations, but there's no requirement that you pay for our services. If you need our services, we are here to support you free of charge for as long as you need it. Anything we missed? Oh, I could talk about service dogs forever, but I think this is a really good <laughs> chat. <laughs> I think that we've gone over a really great chunk of information today and certainly encourage anybody listening or viewing this this to be able to um, reach out with if a more specific question. Um, a lot of the times specifics have to be done on a one-on-one because we really need to get into your case and we're happy to do that with anybody. Just give us a holler. We'll, we'll help you through it. Thank you so much, Kristen. This has been really wonderful. I'm so excited. I can't wait to put it up on the uh, the new. We are designing a new website. The new website should be up within two weeks. So as soon That's- as I put it up on the new website, you'll be one of the first ones up. Fabulous. We're very excited about that and really appreciate the opportunity to really expand information and really reach more people with this because it's really important. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Do, 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 do.